the Rowan Tree Collection. Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen Chapter 13 Their intended excursion to Whitwell turned out very different from what Eleanor had expected. She was prepared to be wet through, fatigued, and frightened, but the event was still more unfortunate, for they did not go at all. By ten o'clock, the whole party was assembled at the park, where they were to breakfast. The morning was rather favorable, though it had rained all night, as the clouds were then dispersing across the sky and the sun frequently appeared. They were all in high spirits and good humor, eager to be happy and determined to submit to the greatest inconveniences and hardships rather than be otherwise. While they were at breakfast, the letters were brought in. Among the rest, there was one for Colonel Brandon. He took it, looked at the direction, changed color, and immediately left the room. "'What is the matter with Brandon?' said Sir John. Nobody could tell. "'I hope he has had no bad news,' said Lady Middleton. "'It must be something extraordinary that could make Colonel Brandon leave my breakfast table so suddenly.' In about five minutes he returned. "'No bad news, Colonel, I hope?' said Mrs. Jennings, as soon as he entered the room. "'Not at all, ma'am, I thank you. "'Was it from Avignon? "'I hope it is not to say that your sister is worse. "'No, ma'am, it came from town and is merely a letter of business.' "'But how came the hand to discompose you so much "'if it was only a letter of business? "'Come, come, this won't do, Colonel, "'so let us hear the truth of it.' "'My dear madam,' said Lady Middleton, "'recollect what you are saying.' "'Perhaps it is to tell you that your cousin Fanny is married,' said Mrs. Jennings, without attending to her daughter's reproof. "'No, indeed, it is not.' "'Well, then, I know who it is from, Colonel, and I hope she is well.' "'Whom do you mean, ma'am?' said he, colouring a little. "'Oh, you know who I mean.' "'I am particularly sorry, ma'am.' said he, addressing Lady Middleton, that I should receive this letter today, for it is on business which requires my immediate attendance in town. In town, cried Mrs. Jennings. What can you have to do in town at this time of year? My own loss is great, he continued, in being obliged to leave so agreeable a party, but I am the more concerned as I fear my presence is necessary to gain your admittance at Whitwell. What a blow upon them all was this. "'But if you write a note to the housekeeper, Mr. Brandon,' said Marianne eagerly, "'will it not be sufficient?' He shook his head. "'We must go,' said Sir John. "'It shall not be put off when we are so near it. "'You cannot go to town till tomorrow, Brandon. "'That is all.' "'I wish it could be so easily settled. "'But it is not in my power to delay my journey for one day.' "'If you would but let us know what your business is,' said Mrs. Jennings, we might see whether it could be put off or not. He would not be six hours later, said Willoughby, if you were to defer your journey till our return. I cannot afford to lose one hour. Eleanor then heard Willoughby say, in a low voice to Marianne, There are some people who cannot bear a party of pleasure. Brandon is one of them. He was afraid of catching cold, I dare say, and invented this trick for getting out of it. I would lay fifty guineas the letter was of his own writing. I have no doubt of it, replied Marianne. There is no persuading you to change your mind, Brandon, I know of old, said Sir John, when once you are determined on anything. 
but, however, I hope you will think better of it. Consider here are the two Miss Carries come over from Newton, the three Miss Dashwoods walked up from the cottage, and Mr. Willoughby got up two hours before his usual time on purpose to go to Whitwell. Colonel Brandon again repeated his sorrow at being the cause of disappointing the party, but at the same time declared it to be unavoidable. Well, then, when will you come back again? I hope we shall see you at Barton, added her ladyship, as soon as you can conveniently leave town, and we must put off the party to Whitwell till you return. You are very obliging, but it is so uncertain when I may have it in my power to return that I dare not engage for it at all. Oh, he must and shall come back, cried Sir John. If he is not here by the end of the week, I shall go after him. I so do, Sir John, cried Mrs. Jennings, and then perhaps you may find out what his business is. I do not want to pry into other men's concerns. I suppose it is something he is ashamed of. Colonel Brandon's horses were announced. You do not go to town on horseback, do you? added Sir John. No, only to Honiton. I shall then go post. Well, as you were resolved to go, I wish you a good journey. But you had better change your mind. I assure you it is not in my power. He then took leave of the whole party. Is there no chance of my seeing you and your sisters in town this winter, Miss Dashwood? I'm afraid none at all. Then I must bid you farewell for a longer time than I should wish to do. To Marianne, he merely bowed and said nothing. Come, Colonel, said Mrs. Jennings. Before you go, do let us know what you are going about. He wished her a good morning, and, attended by Sir John, left the room. The complaints and lamentations which politeness had hitherto restrained now burst forth universally, and they all agreed again and again how provoking it was to be so disappointed. I can guess what his business is, however, said Mrs. Jennings exultingly. "'Can you, ma'am?' said almost everybody. "'Yes, it is about Miss Williams, I am sure.' "'And who is Miss Williams?' asked Marianne. "'What? Do not you know who Miss Williams is? "'I am sure you must have heard of her before. "'She is a relation of the Colonel's, my dear, a very near relation. "'We will not say how near for fear of shocking the young ladies.' Then, lowering her voice a little, she said to Eleanor, She is his natural daughter. Indeed? Oh, yes, and as like him as she can stare. I dare say the colonel will leave her all his fortune. When Sir John returned, he joined most heartily in the general regret on so unfortunate an event, concluding, however, by observing that as they were all got together, they must do something by way of being happy and after some consultation it was agreed that although happiness could only be enjoyed at Whitwell, they might procure a tolerable composure of mind by driving about the country. The carriages were then ordered. Willoughby's was first, and Marianne never looked happier than when she got into it. He drove through the park very fast, and they were soon out of sight, and nothing more of them was seen till their return, which did not happen till after the return of all the rest. They both seemed delighted with their drive, but said only in general terms that they had kept in the lanes while the others went on the downs. It was settled that there should be a dance in the evening, and that everybody should be extremely merry all day long. Some more of the Carries came to dinner, and they had the pleasure of sitting down nearly twenty to table, 
which Sir John observed with great contentment. Willoughby took his usual place between the two elder Miss Dashwoods. Mrs. Jennings sat on Eleanor's right hand, and they had not been long seated before she leaned behind her and Willoughby and said to Marianne, loud enough for them both to hear, "'I have found you out in spite of all your tricks. I know where you spent the morning.' Marianne colored and replied very hastily, "'Where, pray?' "'Did not you know,' said Willoughby, "'though we had been out in my curricle.' "'Yes, yes, Mr. Impudence, I know that very well, "'and I was determined to find out where you had been to. "'I hope you like your house, Miss Marianne. "'It is a very large one, I know, "'and when I come to see you, I hope you will have new furnished it, "'for it wanted very much when I was there six years ago.' "'Marianne turned away in great confusion.' Mrs. Jennings laughed heartily, and Eleanor found that in her resolution to know where they had been, she had actually made her own woman inquire of Mr. Willoughby's groom, and that she had by that method been informed that they had gone to Allenham, and spent a considerable time there in walking about the garden and going all over the house. Eleanor could hardly believe this to be true, as it seemed very unlikely that Willoughby should propose, or Marianne consent, to enter the house while Mrs. Smith was in it, with whom Marianne had not the smallest acquaintance. As soon as they left the dining-room, Eleanor inquired of her about it, and great was her surprise when she found that every circumstance related by Mrs. Jennings was perfectly true. Marianne was quite angry with her for doubting it. "'Why should you imagine, Eleanor, that we did not go there, or that we did not see the house? Is not it what you have often wished to do yourself?' "'Yes, Marianne, but I would not go while Mrs. Smith was there, and with no other companion than Mr. Willoughby.' Mr. Willoughby, however, is the only person who can have a right to show that house, and as he went in an open carriage, it was impossible to have any other companion. I never spent a pleasanter morning in my life. I'm afraid, replied Eleanor, that the pleasantness of an employment does not always evince its propriety. On the contrary, nothing can be a stronger proof of it, Eleanor, for if there had been any real impropriety in what I did, I should have been sensible of it at the time, for we always know when we are acting wrong, and with such a conviction I could have had no pleasure. But, my dear Marianne, as it has already exposed you to some very impertinent remarks, do you not now begin to doubt the discretion of your own conduct? If the impertinent remarks of Mrs. Jennings are to be the proof of impropriety in conduct, we are all offending every moment of our lives. I value not her censure any more than I should do her commendation. I am not sensible of having done anything wrong in walking over Miss Smith's grounds or in seeing her house. They will one day be Mr. Willoughby's, and if they were one day to be your own, Marianne, you would not be justified in what you have done. She blushed at this hint but it was even visibly gratifying to her, and after a ten minutes' interval of earnest thought she came to her sister again, and said with great humour, "'Perhaps, Eleanor, it was rather ill-judged of me to go to Allenham, but Mr. Willoughby wanted particularly to show me the place, and it is a charming house, I assure you. There's one remarkably pretty sitting-room upstairs, of a nice comfortable size for constant use, and with modern furniture it would be delightful.' It is a corner room and has windows on two sides. On one side you look across the bowling green behind the house to a beautiful hanging wood, and on the other you have a view of the church and village, and beyond them of those fine bold hills that we have so often admired. I did not see it to advantage, for nothing could be more forlorn than the furniture, but if it were newly fitted up, 
couple of hundred pounds, Willoughby says, would make it one of the pleasantest summer rooms in England. Could Eleanor have listened to her without interruption from the others, she would have described every room in the house with equal delight. Chapter 14 The sudden termination of Colonel Brandon's visit at the park, with his steadiness in concealing its cause, filled the mind and raised the wonder of Mrs. Jennings for two or three days. She was a great wanderer, as everyone must be who takes a very lively interest in all the comings and goings of all their acquaintance. She wondered, with little intermission, what could be the reason of it, was sure there must be some bad news, and thought over every kind of distress that could have befallen him, with a fixed determination that he should not escape them all. "'Something very melancholy must be the matter, I am sure,' said she. "'I could see it in his face. Poor man, I am afraid his circumstances may be bad.' The estate at Delaford was never reckoned more than two thousand a year, and his brother left everything sadly involved. I do think he must have been sent for about money matters, for what else can it be? I wonder whether it is so. I would give anything to know the truth of it. Perhaps it is about Miss Williams. And, by the by, I dare say it is, because he looked so conscious when I mentioned her. Maybe she is ill in town. Nothing in the world more likely, for I have a notion she is always rather sickly. I would lay any wager it is about Miss Williams. It is not so very likely he should be distressed in his circumstances now, for he is a very prudent man, and to be sure must have cleared the estate by this time. I wonder what it can be. Maybe his sister is worse at Avignon and has sent for him over. His setting off in such a hurry seems very like it. Well, I wish him out of all his trouble with all my heart and a good wife into the bargain." So wondered, so talked Mrs. Jennings, her opinion varying with every fresh conjecture and all seeming equally probable as they arose. Eleanor, though she felt really interested in the welfare of Colonel Brandon, could not bestow all the wonder on his going so suddenly away, which Mrs. Jennings was desirous of her feeling. For besides that, the circumstance did not, in her opinion, justify such lasting amazement or variety of speculation. Her wonder was otherwise disposed of. It was engrossed by the extraordinary silence of her sister and Willoughby on the subject, which they must know to be peculiarly interesting to them all. As the silence continued, every day made it appear more strange and more incompatible with the disposition of both. Why should they not openly acknowledge to her mother and herself what their constant behavior to each other declared to have taken place, Eleanor could not imagine. She could easily conceive that marriage might not be immediately in their power, for though Willoughby was independent, there was no reason to believe him rich. His estate had been rated by Sir John at about six or seven hundred a year, but he lived at an expense to which that income could hardly be equal, and he had himself often complained of his poverty. But for this strange kind of secrecy maintained by them relative to their engagement, which in fact concealed nothing at all, she could not account and it was so wholly contradictory to their general opinion and practice that a doubt sometimes entered her mind of their being really engaged, and this doubt was enough to prevent her in making any inquiry of Marianne. Nothing could be more expressive of attachment to them all than Willoughby's behavior. To Marianne it had all the distinguishing tenderness which a lover's heart could give, and to the rest of the family it was the affectionate attention of a son and brother. The cottage seemed to be considered and loved by him as his home. Many more of his hours were spent there than at Allenham, and if no general engagement collected them at the park, the exercise which called him out in the morning was almost certain of ending there, where the rest of the day was spent by himself at the side of Marianne, and by his favorite pointer at her feet. 
One evening in particular, about a week after Colonel Brandon left the country, his heart seemed more than usually open to every feeling of attachment to the objects around him, and on Mrs. Dashwood's happening to mention her design of improving the cottage in the spring, he warmly opposed every alteration of a place which affection had established as perfect with him. What? he exclaimed. Improve this dear cottage? No, that I will never consent to. Not a stone must be added to its walls, not an inch to its size, if my feelings are regarded. Do not be alarmed, said Miss Dashwood. Nothing of the kind will be done, for my mother will never have money enough to attempt it. I am heartily glad of it, he cried. May she always be poor, if she can employ her riches no better. Thank you, Willoughby but you may be assured that I would not sacrifice one sentiment of local attachment of yours or of any one whom I have loved for all the improvements in the world. Depend upon it that whatever unemployed sum may remain when I make up my accounts in the spring, I would even rather lay it uselessly by than to dispose of it in a manner so painful to you. But are you really so attached to this place as to see no defect in it? I am, said he. To me it is faultless. Nay, more, I consider it as the only form of building in which happiness is attainable, and were I rich enough I would instantly pull comb down and build it up again in the exact plan of this cottage. With dark narrow stairs and a kitchen that smokes, I suppose, said Eleanor. Yes, cried he in the same eager tone, with all and everything belonging to it, and no one convenience or inconvenience about it should the least variation be perceptible. Then... And then only under such a roof, I might perhaps be as happy at Combe as I have been at Barton. I flatter myself, replied Eleanor, that even under the disadvantage of better rooms and a broader staircase, you'll hereafter find your own house as faultless as you now do this. There certainly are circumstances, said Willoughby, which might greatly endear it to me, but this place will always have one claim of my affection which no other can possibly share. Mrs. Dashwood looked with pleasure at Marianne, whose fine eyes were fixed so expressively on Willoughby as plainly denoted how well she understood him. "'How often did I wish,' added he, "'when I was at Allenham this time twelve-month that Barton Cottage were inhabited. I never passed within view of it without admiring its situation and grieving that no one should live in it. How little did I then think that the very first news I should hear from Mrs. Smith when I next came into the country—' would be that Barton Cottage was taken, and I felt an immediate satisfaction and interest in the event, which nothing but a kind of prescience of what happiness I should experience it can account for. Must it not have been so, Marianne? Speaking to her in a lowered voice. Then, continuing his former tone, he said, And yet this house you would spoil, Miss Dashwood. You would rob it of its simplicity by imaginary improvement, and this dear parlour in which our acquaintance first began, and in which so many happy hours have been since spent by us together, you would degrade to the condition of a common entrance, and everybody would be eager to pass through the room which is hitherto contained within itself more real accommodation and comfort than any other apartment of the handsomest dimensions in the world could possibly afford." Mrs. Dashwood again assured him that no alteration of the kind should be attempted. "'You are a good woman,' he warmly replied. "'Your promise makes me easy. Extend it a little farther, and it will make me happy. Tell me that not only your house will remain the same, but that I shall ever find you and yours as unchanged as your dwelling, 
and that you will always consider me with the kindness which has made everything belonging to you so dear to me. The promise was readily given, and Willoughby's behavior during the whole of the evening declared at once his affection and happiness. "'Shall we see you tomorrow at dinner?' said Mrs. Dashwood when he was leaving them. "'I do not ask you to come in the morning, for we must walk to the park to call on Lady Middleton.' He engaged to be with them by four o'clock. Chapter 15 Mrs. Dashwood's visit to Lady Middleton took place the next day, and two of her daughters went with her, but Marianne excused herself from being of the party under some trifling pretext of employment, and her mother, who concluded that a promise had been made by a Willoughby the night before of calling on her while they were absent, was perfectly satisfied with her remaining at home. On their return from the park, they found Willoughby's curricle and servant in waiting at the cottage, and Mrs. Dashwood was convinced that her conjecture had been just. So far, it was all as she had foreseen, but on entering the house, she beheld what no foresight had taught her to expect. They were no sooner in the passage than Marianne came hastily out of the parlor, apparently in violent affliction. With her handkerchief at her eyes and without noticing them, ran upstairs. Surprised and alarmed, they proceeded directly into the room she had just quitted, where they found only Willoughby, who was leaning against the mantelpiece with his back towards them. He turned round on their coming in, and his countenance showed that he was strongly partook of the emotion which overpowered Marianne. "'Is anything the matter with her?' cried Mrs. Dashwood as she entered. "'Is she ill?' "'I hope not,' he replied, trying to look cheerful, and with a forced smile presently added, "'It is I who may rather expect to be ill, for I am now suffering under a very heavy disappointment.' "'Disappointment?' "'Yes.' for I am unable to keep my engagement with you. Mrs. Smith has this morning exercised the privilege of riches upon a poor dependent cousin by sending me on business to London. I have just received my dispatches and taken my farewell of Allenham, and by way of exhilaration I am now come to take my farewell of you. To London? And are you going this morning? Almost this moment. This is very unfortunate. But Mrs. Smith must be obliged, and her business will not detain you from us long, I hope. He colored as he replied, You are very kind, but I have no idea of returning into Devonshire immediately. My visits to Mrs. Smith are never repeated within the twelfth month. And is Mrs. Smith your only friend? Is Allenham the only house in the neighborhood to which you will be welcome? For shame, Willoughby. Can you wait for an invitation here? His color increased, and with his eyes fixed on the ground, he only replied, "'You are too good.' Mrs. Dashwood looked at Eleanor with surprise. Eleanor felt equal amazement. For a few moments, everyone was silent. Mrs. Dashwood first spoke. "'I have only to add, my dear Willoughby, that at Barton Cottage you will always be welcome, for I will not press you to return here immediately, because you only can judge how far that might be pleasing to Mrs. Smith, and on this head I shall be no more disposed to question your judgment than to doubt your inclination.' "'My engagements at present,' replied Willoughby confusedly, "'are of such a nature that I dare not flatter myself.' He stopped. Mrs. Dashwood was too much astonished to speak, and another pause succeeded. This was broken by Willoughby, who said with a faint smile, "'It is folly to linger in this manner. I will not torment myself any longer by remaining among friends whose society is impossible for me now to enjoy.' He then hastily took leave of them all and left the room. They saw him step into his carriage, and in a minute it was out of sight. 
Mrs. Dashwood felt too much for speech, and instantly quitted the parlour to give way in solitude to the concern and alarm which this sudden departure occasioned. Eleanor's uneasiness was at least equal to her mother's. She thought of what had just passed with anxiety and distrust. Willoughby's behaviour in taking leave of them, his embarrassment and affection of cheerfulness, and above all his unwillingness to accept her mother's invitation, a backwardness so unlike a lover, so unlike himself, greatly disturbed her. One moment she feared that no serious design had ever been formed on his side, and the next that some unfortunate quarrel had taken place between him and her sister. The distress in which Marianne had quitted the room was such as a serious quarrel could most reasonably account for, though when she considered what Marianne's love for him was, a quarrel seemed almost impossible. But whatever might be the particulars of their separation, her sister's affliction was indubitable and she thought with the tenderest compassion of that violent sorrow which Marianne was in all probability not merely giving way to as a relief, but feeding and encouraging as a duty. In about half an hour her mother returned, and though her eyes were red, her countenance was not uncheerful. "'Our dear Willoughby is now some miles from Barton, Eleanor,' said she as she sat down to work. "'And with how heavy a heart does he travel? "'It is all very strange, so suddenly to be gone,' It seems but the work of a moment, and last night he was with us so happy, so cheerful, so affectionate, and now, after only ten minutes' notice, gone to without intending to return. Something more than what he owed to us must have happened. He did not speak. He did not behave like himself. You must have seen the difference as well as I. What can it be? Can they have quarreled? Why else should he have shown such unwillingness to accept your invitation here?' It was not inclination that he wanted, Eleanor. I could plainly see that. He had not the power of accepting it. I have thought it all over, I assure you, and I can perfectly account for everything that at first seemed strange to me as well as to you. Can you indeed? Yes. I have explained it to myself in the most satisfactory way. But you, Eleanor, who love to doubt where you can, it will not satisfy you, I know but you shall not talk me out of my trust in it. I am persuaded that Mrs. Smith suspects his regard for Marianne, disapproves of it, perhaps because she has other views for him, and on that account is eager to get him away, and that the business which she sends him off to transact is invented as an excuse to dismiss him. This is what I believe to have happened. He is, moreover, aware that she does disapprove the connection, he dares not, therefore, at present confess to her his engagement with Marianne, and he feels himself obliged from his dependent situation to give into her schemes and absent himself from Devonshire for a while. You will tell me, I know, that this may or may not have happened, but I will listen to no cavil unless you can point out any other method of understanding the affair as satisfactory as this. And now, Eleanor, what have you to say? Nothing, for you have anticipated my answer. "'Then you would have told me that it might or might not have happened. "'Oh, Eleanor, how incomprehensible are your feelings! "'You would rather take evil upon credit than good. "'You would rather look out for misery for Marianne and guilt for poor Willoughby "'than an apology for the latter. "'You are resolved to think him blamable "'because he took leave of us with less affection "'than his usual behavior has shown, "'and is no allowance to be made for inadvertence "'or for spirits depressed by recent disappointment.' Are no probabilities to be accepted, merely because they are not certainties? Is nothing due to the man whom we all have such reason to love, and no reason in this world to think ill of? 
to the possibility of motives unanswerable in themselves, though unavoidably secret for a while. And after all, what is it you suspect him of? I can hardly tell myself, but suspicion of something unpleasant is the inevitable consequence of such an alteration as we just witnessed in him. There is great truth, however, in what you have now urged of the allowances which ought to be made for him, and it is my wish to be candid in my judgment of everybody. Willoughby may undoubtedly have very sufficient reasons for his conduct, and I will hope that he has, but it would have been more like Willoughby to acknowledge them at once. Secrecy may be advisable, but still I cannot help wondering at its being practiced by him. Do not blame him, however, for departing from his character where the deviation is necessary, but you really do admit the justice of what I have said in his defense? I am happy, and he is acquitted. Not entirely. It may be proper to conceal their engagement, if they are engaged, from Mrs. Smith, and if that is the case, it must be highly expedient for Willoughby to be but little in Devonshire at present, but this is no excuse for their concealing it from us. Concealing it from us? My dear child, you accuse Willoughby and Marianne of concealment. This is strange indeed, when your eyes have been reproaching them every day for incautiousness. I want no proof of their affection, said Eleanor, but of their engagement, I do. I am perfectly satisfied of both. Yet not a syllable has been said to you on the subject, by either of them. I have not wanted syllables where actions have spoken so plainly. Has not his behavior to Marianne, and to all of us, for at least the last fortnight, declared that he loved and considered her as his future wife? That he felt for us the attachment of the nearest relation? Have we not perfectly understood each other? Has not my consent been daily asked by his looks, his manner, his attentive and affectionate respect? My Eleanor, is it possible to doubt their engagement? How could such a thought occur to you? How is it to be supposed that Willoughby, persuaded as he must be of your sister's love, should leave her, and leave her perhaps for months, without telling her of his affection, that they should part without a mutual exchange of confidence? I confess, replied Eleanor, that every circumstance except one is in favor of their engagement, but that one is the total silence of both on the subject and with me it almost outweighs every other. How strange this is! You must think wretchedly indeed of Willoughby if, after all that has openly passed between them, you can doubt the nature of the terms on which they are together. Has he been acting a part in his behavior to your sister all this time? Do you suppose him really indifferent to her? No, I cannot think that. He must and does love her, I am sure but with a strange kind of tenderness if he can leave her with such indifference, such carelessness of the future as you attribute to him. You must remember, my dear mother, that I have never considered this matter as certain. I have had my doubts, I confess, but they are fainter than they were, and they may soon be entirely done away. If we find they correspond, every fear of mine will be removed. A mighty concession, indeed. If you were to see them at the altar, you would suppose they were going to be married. Ungracious girl. But I require no such proof. 
Nothing, in my opinion, has ever passed to justify doubt. No secrecy has been attempted. All has been uniformly open and unreserved. You cannot doubt your sister's wishes. It must be Willoughby, therefore, whom you suspect. But why? Is he not a man of honor and feeling? Has there been any inconsistency on his side to create alarm? Can he be deceitful? I hope not. I believe not, cried Eleanor. I love Willoughby. Sincerely love him. And suspicion of his integrity cannot be more painful to yourself than to me. It has been involuntary, and I will not encourage it. I was startled, I confess, by the alteration in his manners this morning. He did not speak like himself, and did not return your kindness with any cordiality. But all this may be explained by such a situation of his affairs as you have supposed. He had just parted from my sister, had seen her leave him in the greatest affliction, and if he felt obliged, from a fear of offending Mrs. Smith, to resist the temptation of returning here soon, and yet aware that by declining her invitation, by saying that he was going away for some time, he should seem to act an ungenerous, a suspicious part by our family, he might well be embarrassed and disturbed. In such a case, a plain and open avowal of his difficulties would have been more to his honor, I think, as well as more consistent with his general character. But I will not raise objections against anyone's conduct on so illiberal a foundation as a difference in judgment from myself, or a deviation from what I may think right and consistent. You speak very properly. Willoughby certainly does not deserve to be suspected. Though we have not known him long, he is no stranger in this part of the world, and who has ever spoken to his disadvantage? Had he been in a situation to act independently and marry immediately, it might have been odd that he should leave us without acknowledging everything to me at once. But this is not the case. It is an engagement in some respects not prosperously begun, for their marriage must be at a very uncertain distance. And even secrecy, as far as it can be observed, may now be very advisable. They were interrupted by the entrance of Margaret, and Eleanor was then at liberty to think over the representations of her mother, to acknowledge the probability of many, and hope for the justice of all. They saw nothing of Mary Ann till dinner-time, when she entered the room and took her place at the table without saying a word. Her eyes were red and swollen, and it seemed as if her tears were even then restrained with difficulty. She avoided the looks of them all, could neither eat nor speak, and after some time, on her mother's silently pressing her hand with tender compassion, her small degree of fortitude was quite overcome. She burst into tears and left the room. This violent oppression of spirits continued the whole evening. She was without any power because she was without any desire of command over herself. The slightest mention of anything relative to Willoughby overpowered her in an instant, and though her family were most anxiously attentive to her comfort, it was impossible for them, if they spoke at all, to keep clear of every subject which her feelings connected with him. Chapter 16 Marianne would have thought herself very inexcusable had she been able to sleep at all the first night after parting from Willoughby. She would have been ashamed to look her family in the face the next morning had she not risen from her bed in more need of repose than when she lay down in it. But the feelings which made such composure a disgrace left her in no danger of incurring it. She was awake the whole night, and she wept the greatest part of it. She got up with a headache, was unable to talk and unwilling to take any nourishment, giving pain every moment to her mother and sisters and forbidding all attempt at consolation from either. Her sensibility was potent enough. 
When breakfast was over, she walked out by herself and wandered about the village of Allenham, indulging the recollection of past enjoyment and crying over the present reverse for the chief of the morning. The evening passed off in the equal indulgence of feeling. She played over every favorite song that she had been used to play to Willoughby, every air in which their voices had been oftenest joined, and sat at the instrument gazing on every line of music that he had written out for her, till her heart was so heavy that no further sadness could be gained, and this nourishment of grief was every day applied. She spent whole hours at the pianoforte, alternately singing and crying, her voice often totally suspended by her tears. In books, too, as well as in music, she courted the misery which a contrast between the past and present was certain of giving. She read nothing but what they had been used to read together. Such violence of affliction indeed could not be supported forever. It sunk within a few days into a calmer melancholy, but these employments to which she daily recurred, her solitary walks and silent meditations, still produced occasional effusions of sorrow as lively as ever. No letter from Willoughby came, and none seemed expected by Marianne. Her mother was surprised, and Eleanor again became uneasy, but Mrs. Dashwood could find explanations whenever she wanted them, which at least satisfied herself. "'Remember, Eleanor,' said she, "'how very often Sir John fetches our letters himself from the post and carries them to it.' We have already agreed that secrecy may be necessary, and we must acknowledge that it could not be maintained if their correspondence were to pass through Sir John's hands. Eleanor could not deny the truth of this, and she tried to find in it a motive sufficient for their silence. But there was one method so direct, so simple, and in her opinion so eligible of knowing the real state of the affair and of instantly removing all mystery that she could not help suggesting it to her mother. "'Why do you not ask Marianne at once?' said she. "'Whether she is or she is not engaged to Willoughby.' "'From you, her mother, and so kind, so indulgent to mother, "'the question could not give offence. "'It would be the natural result of your affection for her. "'She used to be all on reserve, and to you more especially.' "'I would not ask such a question for the world.' Supposing it possible that they are not engaged, what distress would not such an inquiry inflict? At any rate, it would be most ungenerous. I should never deserve her confidence again after forcing from her a confession of what is meant at present to be unacknowledged to any one. I know Marianne's heart. I know that she dearly loves me, and that I shall not be the last to whom the affair is made known, when circumstances make the revealment of it eligible." I would not attempt to force the confidence of any one, of a child much less, because a sense of duty would prevent the denial which her wishes might direct. Eleanor thought this generosity overstrained, considering her sister's youth, and urged the matter farther, but in vain. Common sense, common care, common prudence were all sunk in Mrs. Dashwood's romantic delicacy. It was several days before Willoughby's name was mentioned before Marianne by any of her family. Sir John and Mrs. Jennings, indeed, were not so nice. Their witticisms added pain to many a painful hour. But one evening, Mrs. Dashwood, accidentally taking up a volume of Shakespeare, exclaimed, "'We have never finished Hamlet, Marianne. Our dear Willoughby went away before we could get through it. We will put it by, that when he comes again, but it may be months, perhaps, before that happens.' 
months, cried Marianne with strong surprise. No, nor many weeks. Mrs. Dashwood was sorry for what she had said, but it gave Elinor pleasure, as it produced a reply from Marianne so expressive of confidence in Willoughby and knowledge of his intentions. One morning, about a week after his leaving the country, Marianne was prevailed on to join her sisters in their usual walk, instead of wandering away by herself. Hitherto she had carefully avoided every companion in her rambles. If her sisters intended to walk on the downs, she directly stole away towards the lanes. If they talked of the valley, she was as speedy in climbing the hills and could never be found when the others set off. But at length she was secured by the exertions of Eleanor, who greatly disapproved such continual seclusion. They walked along the road through the valley and chiefly in silence, for Marianne's mind could not be controlled, and Eleanor, satisfied with gaining one point, would not then attempt more. Beyond the entrance of the valley, where the country, though still rich, was less wild and more open, a long stretch of the road which they have travelled on first coming to Barton lay before them, and on reaching that point they stopped to look around them, and examine a prospect which formed the distance of their view from the cottage, from a spot which they had never happened to reach in any of their walks before. Amongst the objects in the scene they soon discovered an animated one. It was a man on horseback riding towards them. In a few minutes they could distinguish him to be a gentleman, and in a moment afterwards, Marianne rapturously exclaimed, It is he! It is indeed! I know it is! And was hastening to meet him when Eleanor cried out, Indeed, Marianne, I think you are mistaken! It is not Willoughby. The person is not tall enough for him and has not his air. He has! He has! cried Marianne. I am sure he has! His air, his coat, his horse... I knew how soon he would come. She walked eagerly on as she spoke, and Eleanor, to screen Marianne from particularity, as she felt almost certain of its not being Willoughby, quickened her pace and kept up with her. They were soon within thirty yards of the gentleman. Marianne looked again, her heart sunk within her, and abruptly turning around, she was hurrying back when the voices of both her sisters were raised to detain her. A third almost as well known as Willoughby's, joined them in begging her to stop, and she turned round with surprise to see and welcome Edward Ferrers. He was the only person in the world who could at that moment be forgiven for not being Willoughby, the only one who could have gained a smile from her, but she dispersed her tears to smile on him, and in her sister's happiness forgot for a time her own disappointment. He dismounted, and giving his horse to his servant, walked back with them to Barton, whither he was purposely coming to visit them. He was welcomed by them all with great cordiality, but especially by Marianne, who showed more warmth of regard in her reception of him than even Eleanor herself. To Marianne, indeed, the meeting between Edward and her sister was but a continuation of that unaccountable coldness which she had often observed at Norland in their mutual behavior. On Edward's side, more particularly, there was a deficiency of all that a lover ought to look and say on such an occasion. He was confused, seeming scarcely sensible of pleasure in seeing them, looked neither rapturous nor gay, said little but what was forced from him by questions, and distinguished Eleanor by no mark of affection. Marianne saw and listened with increasing surprise. She began almost to feel a dislike of Edward, and it ended, as every feeling must end with her, by carrying back her thoughts to Willoughby whose manners formed a contrast sufficiently striking to those of his brother-elect. 
After a short silence which succeeded the first surprise and inquiries of the meeting, Marianne asked Edward if he came directly from London. No, he had been in Devonshire a fortnight. A fortnight, she repeated, surprised at his being so long in the same county with Eleanor without seeing her before. He looked rather distressed as he added that he had been staying with some friends near Plymouth. Have you been lately in Sussex? said Eleanor. I was at Norland about a month ago. And how does dear, dear Norland look? cried Marianne. Dear, dear Norland, said Eleanor, probably looks much as it always does at this time of the year. The woods and walks thickly covered with dead leaves. Oh, cried Marianne, with what transporting sensation have I formerly seen them fall? How have I delighted as I walked to see them driven in showers about me by the wind? What feelings have they, the season, the air, altogether inspired? Now there is no one to regard them. They're seen only as a nuisance, swept hastily off, and driven as much as possible from the sight. It is not everyone, said Eleanor, who has your passion for dead leaves. No, my feelings are not often shared, not often understood. But sometimes they are. As she said this, she sunk into a reverie for a few moments, but rousing herself again, Now, Edward, said she, calling his attention to the prospect, here is Barton Valley. Look up to it and be tranquil if you can. Look at those hills. Did you ever see their equals? To the left is Barton Park, amongst those woods and plantations. You may see the end of the house. And there, beneath that farthest hill, which rises with such grandeur, is our cottage. It is a beautiful country, he replied, but these bottoms must be dirty in winter. How can you think of dirt with such objects before you? Because, repeated he, smiling, among the rest of the objects before me, I see a very dirty lane. How strange, said Marianne to herself as she walked on. Have you an agreeable neighborhood here? Are the Middletons pleasant people? No, not at all, answered Marianne. We could not be more unfortunately situated. Marianne, cried her sister, how can you say so? How can you be so unjust? They are a very respectable family, Mr. Ferrers, and towards us have behaved in the friendliest manner. Have you forgot, Marianne, how many pleasant days we have owed to them? No, said Marianne in a low voice, nor how many painful moments. Eleanor took no notice of this, and directing her attention to their visitor, endeavored to support something like discourse with him by talking of their present residence, its conveniences, etc., extorting from him occasional questions and remarks. His coldness and reserve mortified her severely. She was vexed and half angry, but resolving to regulate her behavior to him by the past rather than the present, she avoided every appearance of resentment or displeasure, and treated him as she thought he ought to be treated from the family connection. The Rowan Tree Collection is created and produced by Rhea Boltice. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review. For more information, you can visit us on Twitter at Rowan Podcast. 
Check out our Facebook page, The Rowan Tree Collection. Visit us on Instagram at The Rowan Tree Collection. Or if you want to support our show, follow us on Patreon at The Rowan Tree Collection. For links to all of those and more, visit our website, shows.acast.com slash the rowan tree collection. Or you can send an email to the Rowan Tree Collection at shethedistance.com. Thanks for listening.